What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. We'd like to say thank you and welcome to everyone joining us for the hundredth time or the first time. We're so glad that you're with us this week. And we'd like to thank all of our patrons and academy members who make this podcast possible. Uh, and this week, we'd like to thank specifically Liz Otterson, our new patron who joined this week. So Liz, congratulations, you, Liz. congratulations. Welcome to the crew. And if you would like to be like Liz, you can pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and find out all the goodies you can get by being a patron and supporting this podcast. And if you would like to take your writing journey one step further, then please go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and learn about the Bestseller Academy, where Mark and I can become your coaches, your absolute coaches, week to week, month to month, helping you on your journey. So, Mr. Stay, you had a bit of fun at the London Book Fair last week, I hear. I did. It was it was so much fun, actually. It was um it was the last day of the book fair, so it wasn't as jam packed as uh, as it as it was in the previous couple of days. Um, but that said, you know, within five minutes, I'd already bumped into three people I knew, which was really nice. It was, and it was one of these things, you know, saw old friends and saw new, saw met podcast listeners. Kate Baker was there. It was lovely to catch up with her. And then I, I did a panel uh, on how I write with um, actually featuring today's special guest. We'll come to that in a minute. But also the authors, Millie Johnson, Stacey Halls, uh, which was really, really good. And that was packed. Absolutely packed, um, and it was great to play out to a you know sold out house, which was really good fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, haven't done that in a while. Haven't done no. that ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> That's fantastic. What what were the kind of? I mean, just I mean, obviously we can't go into huge detail, but what would you say were the major things that came up in the how I write? To, you know, Q and A. Well, I did about. Four times mentioned the 200 word a day challenge <laughs> because they're just the idea, this idea of writing every day, particularly if you're starting out, you know, just at, it's like learning your skills, flexing your muscles, doing a little bit of exercise every day. I think that people found that really, really interesting and inspiring. And, and everyone had their own different stories. Millie Johnson, who has been on the short episode, uh, has been on the podcast before when she won her RNA award. She was so funny. She's such a laugh. Um, she was talking about it's sometimes it's like driving in the fog you know and you can barely see what's ahead of you but you've got to keep going you've got to keep going you've got to persevere and she was saying there were, she did she once did a 26 hour 
<laughs> writing stint when she was up against the deadline. She said people just sort of opening a door, throwing in a pie. <laughs> 26 <laughs> hours? Yeah, yeah. But without crazy. breaking? Yeah, it was crazy. That's insane. So, yeah, I'd be curious as to what she wrote in 26 hours in terms of quantity <laughs> of words and how well, it probably diminished towards the end per she hour. She did right? she did tell us it was tens of thousands of words. It was it was astonishing. But you know, she's she's amazing. I she's, wonder if anyone's ever written a book from start to finish in one and we're not talking short stories, obviously, because I know you could probably write a short story in one sitting, possibly. But like I wonder if anyone's actually written a full novel start to finish i mean it's oh, a bit like sure. could you imagine if you've done that okay we want to hear about it because I, I i mean i know that someone somewhere's probably i mean it's like nanorimo on on steroids steroids in some ways. Yeah. could you imagine it <laughs> but maybe maybe you've done 27 days of nanorimo and not actually started and then you spent the last three days writing your fifty thousand words but wow that's mm. incredible that's exciting but how lovely is it to be back out and meeting people and um, just experience socialization again. That's that's super exciting, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, th there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha, you know, authors saying, should I go? Shouldn't I go? Uh, and absolutely you should go. I mean, uh, London Book Fair has Author HQ, which has, you know, from morning till night, well, from opening till closing, just panels for writers with great advice on all aspects of writing. Gardeners are there. So, you know, if you, um, as we were talking a few episodes ago with Martin Latham about how to get your book into Waterstones, get it on Gardeners, first of all. Gardeners are there to help you out. All kinds of supplies with, you know, stuff on marketing and, and you know, it's um, really, really, really a great place to go. And I know, like I said, I bumped into Kate Baker, who's um, uh, part of the Bestseller Academy. And, you know, she, what I remember her, she was saying she was looking at a publisher store because all the big publishers and small and indie publishers and she said i want to see my book on that shelf hmm. it, next time i come here you know <laughs> and it was that thing of vi that and I, th I said to him, mr d would love this uh, <laughs> so, that thing of visualizing that thing in the future visualizing your book cover there your book on on their shelf you know so uh kate i think is one of these people who's doing everything right so you know oh, absolutely uh, only well, a matter of time it's really interesting as well because, you know, we talked about this idea in the Academy of, you know, go to the bookstore and look at where you'd like to see your book. Like, where would it fit on the shelf, you know, next to whose name? But I think going to a book fair is even more interesting because yeah. you're not seeing the end result. You're seeing the starting point, which is the publisher that you might sign yeah. with if you go down that yeah, route. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. That's fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and you, you finished your proof pages this week. Yes. So I, I read them out loud. Um, now, as you know, I'm on a calorie controlled diet and I've got this app that monitors everything I do and I've got to get my steps in. Okay. So what I was doing, nice. right, I've got them yeah. on the screen here like this and I was walking, done my cable was long enough. I was walking all the way from here and back again, reading out loud, walking backwards and forwards. You can only see this on the YouTube video, folks. Yeah, walking yeah, yeah. backwards and forwards, walking backwards <laughs> and forwards. Managed to rack up quite a few hundred steps, actually. So That's um... fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> this is like it's like the writer's treadmill you've just invented there, Mark. Well, it's funny you should say that. We had craft coaching at the beginning of the week on the Academy. And uh, Aaron, who's uh, one of our... Uh, Aaron is fantastic in the Academy. Great writer, great science fiction writer, screenwriter too. And, you know, we've, we're on the Zoom chat and everyone's got their little... And Aaron's was... Um, couldn't see him, but I could hear him and ask. And we had a question for Aaron and he came up and he was walking around his apartment, you know, with his iPhone, getting his steps in because, Brilliant. you know, this is what you got to do now. You, know, you can't sit in your butt all day. You've got to get know. those steps in. Mm. I love it. I love it. There should be, uh, 
that I know, I know you can get like standing desks and I've seen a friend mm. of mine who's got a standing desk with a travel, like a, a travelator or a, you know. I think Jared Abercrombie has one of those. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. quite amazing yeah. actually what people can do now. <laughs> I even saw one. I was very tempted. You know, when you go on Amazon to buy something like, you know, um, a pack of screws and then you see something and think, oh, that'll be good. <laughs> two I grand s- later. <laughs> two, exactly. But I saw this, I saw this thing and I thought this would work for writers as well. It's a, it's a, a set of pedals that you put, you put your feet on under your desk and you just pedal away. So it's, it's like, a, oh. I know, right. That's the thing. I, cause I thought, how much time do I spend actually? And so it's like an exercise bike because I've, I've made a pact with myself, Mark, you know, joining, joining your, your uh, kind of goals as well. I made a pact with myself is that my one pleasure in life outside of, you know, all the other things I do, but my, when I take time off, the one thing I do is I love to watch the football lifelong right. Liverpool fan. And so very happy right now. Um, mm. but, I've moved, I've moved an exercise bike that I used to have in the garage. I've moved it into the living room and it looks an eyesore, but I don't care because the deal is, is that I have to be on that bike for at least the first half. And I've Blimey. noticed that, <laughs> and I've noticed that as, as the game gets exciting and like, you know, Salah's running up the pitch, I'm going like crazy. <laughs> so I, so I've really got into that and I love it because it gets, mm. you know, I've got, I've got my little kind of watch that, may, you know, I'm looking at my steps, but I thought all those hours that we spend sitting at our desk, this little device sits under the desk and it's like, it's like a kind of a pared down exercise bike. And I'm curious, okay, writers out there, do you have one of these devices? Is it worth buying? And should we be getting one and pedaling like mad as we, uh, as we write? What you need to do is somehow wire it up to the battery on your laptop or the power cable on your desktop. Yes. And uh, you only get electricity if you're pedaling. Or it's a bit like that write or die app that we have, where if you stop typing, it starts to delete your words. And, oh, I hate that. And, I hate and what that. could happen is if you stop pedaling, you start to lose power on your laptop and you would lose all of your writing if you don't keep it up. That would be good. There you go. There's an idea for someone out there. Brilliant stuff. Excellent. Well, yeah, tell us what your... Um, this is a very important thing because we, we we always remember those mental health episodes that we did. Do you remember that, Mark, a few, mm. few seasons ago? And there was a huge response to that. And I think it's important that we start focusing a bit on health, exercise and writing because the two are very incompatible typically. Mm. Um, so send us in what you do to keep fit. Um, do you have like a routine where you you religiously go out for a walk on the hour every hour when you're doing a long writing session. Uh, do you exercise before you write? Do you get your kind of um, creativity going? You know, tell us what you do because we'd like to just share your stories with everyone and inspire everyone to get out there and get fit. On on this panel at London Book Fair, we we were talking about this very thing because Millie Johnson does the ironing and Stacey Halls was, you know, talking about doing the dishwasher and the and I'm the same. We were talking about maybe starting up our own author household services uh, company, you know, <laughs> you turn it. up one day and you get Millie Johnson turn up and say, I'm, I'm blocked, I'd like to do your ironing, you know. So. <laughs> or you could just do like, if you're into dicta- dictation, you could you can do ironing for other people whilst you dictate, just exactly, make yeah. sure that you have a quiet room to do it in. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> That could absolutely work, couldn't it? Money spinner, yeah. But also, I'd like to say hello to everyone that's listening to us who's currently on a walk. Because what I've heard, Mark, Mm. and I'm sure you've heard this as well, a lot of people like to listen to this podcast whilst they're out on their daily walk. And, um, you know, so hello if you're out and and taking all that lovely fresh air in. And hopefully you've got a day like we have today in, in Vancouver. Beautifully, beautiful summer, summer sunshine 
maybe we were getting up to about 12 degrees, but like two days ago, we had six inches of snow and minus, <laughs> minus two. I just honestly can't, I don't know what's going on. But anyway, <laughs> let's, let's, something we do know that's going on is an incredible guest that we've got today who's had yeah. the most amazing career. I was blown oh, away man. listening to his story. Wow, this is absolutely brilliant. Tell us about Tim Sullivan, Mark. Well, Tim, Sull- Tim Sullivan was on that panel. Um, at the London Book Fair with us, and he was so much fun. Tim is a critically acclaimed TV and film screenwriter whose credits include Jack and Sarah, which he directed and we talk about, Cold Feet, and My Little Pony, A New Generation. That's range, people. That That's a writer <laughs> with range, and we do, we do talk about that as well. Tim is now a self-publishing phenomenon whose best-selling titles, The Dentist and Cyclist, were downloaded over 200,000 times before he moved them over to a traditional publisher, Head of Zeus. Uh, the latest release in this series, the DS Cross series, is The Patient, and it's highly anticipated, features the eccentric and socially awkward but brilliantly persistent DS George Cross. We discuss why honesty is essential when you're a writer, his extraordinary career as a screenwriter, and why the character is more important than the crime. Brilliant stuff. You're going to love this interview, folks. Have a listen in with Mark speaking with the absolutely lovely Tim Sullivan. Tim Sullivan, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm very good too. Thank you. And there's so much to talk about. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, But first of all, Tell us about your latest novel featuring the character D.S. George Cross. Tell us about The Patient. Uh, The Patient's the third in a series of books, um, police procedurals I've written about D.S. George Cross. Um, I think he's a wonderful character. He's very um, idiosyncratic. He's um, quite difficult, can be rude, but he's very dogged in his pursuit of the truth. And this is because he's on the spectrum. Um, he's got what, what used to be called Asperger's, but we can't call that anymore. Um, call it that anymore. We call it autism spectrum condition. Um, so he's quite sort of, he can be quite antisocial. He can come across as rude, but his condition is his gift. And he never he never sees things just as they are. He he will he will interpret things in a way that's based entirely on fact. He never have, has gut instincts. He never likes someone for a crime. Um, he just deals with what's in front of him, which makes him so unique and and frustrating in the sense that if they get the wrong person, and he's actually provided them with the evidence and the arrest, and then he doesn't think that it all stacks up he'll work against himself to prove himself wrong um <laughs> so I, I love him um, and and readers seem to like him absolutely and you're three books in now and uh, how is the character evolving over those three books how is he changing well he's he's changing a bit in that he's got a new partner i mean the, the two main relationships in his life are his father who is an engineer and um, and he, who he meets twice a week, and his um, detective partner Josie Otti, and she was very reluctant to partner him at, at the beginning because she found him so difficult. But she's come to appreciate how brilliant he is, and how once you get beyond the kind of the the, the kind of exterior, um, you see how extraordinary he is. And in a sense, she she becomes his sort of interpreter. To the department, she becomes his interface, um, and and so 
for his part, the way he's developing is that she does tell him that she tries to, 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 to bring him on with social convention. So when they're going to break bad news to, you know, a parent or whatever, not to just blurt it out as a fact, which is what he has a tendency to do. So they've worked it that she will always break bad news and he will let her do that. But at times he just can't help himself because he's just got to get to the point. And um, so he's learning a little bit about communication. He he has this thing where he's fantastic. He's not, he's not great with emotions. He's not terribly empathetic. He has to learn about people's facial expressions because he doesn't they don't register with him so he built up over time a library of facial expressions that he knows what they mean it's like a language and so he's become very good at reading um suspects and fantastically good at interviews when writing about characters with with autism and it is as we know it is a spectrum uh what kind of research did you do? Is this something that's that's close to you or, or is it something that you had to discover? Well, I, I have friends who I think are probably autistic and I have friends who certainly have autistic children, um, some profoundly autistic and some um, what you would say sort of high functioning. And it's something that's always intrigued me because I think it's been very misunderstood. And it, just looking back in, in, in crime fiction, you know, I, I become, came to realise that great characters like Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin, like Sherlock Holmes, um, Christie's Poirot, you know, we'd all look at them now and say that to some extent they were on the spectrum. Um, so that really got me thinking as to I want to put it firmly centre in, 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 in the centre of my books. So I did about two years' research. I, did, I read an awful lot. I met with um, certain... Um, world-leading experts, it, trying to get to understand it because I didn't want to misrepresent it and I didn't want it to be a gimmick. I didn't want it to be like Morse's Jaguar. This, this is who my character is and, and, and it's got to be honest. And I've had a lot of great feedback from, from people with relations with, with um, autism spectrum condition and, and I even had from an employer in America who said, we've got an employee who's completely brilliant at what he does, but it's really difficult to work with him. And I've just read your first book and it's, it's my employee. So I've just bought 10 copies and I'm giving it to everyone in the company to say, read this book and you'll understand a bit more about whoever this chap was. And that to me was a really huge compliment. Wow. That is extraordinary. Talking about extraordinary, let's, let's talk about your career because your, your journey to this point is something else. And uh, let's go to the beginning because as from what I can find, we've had a lot of ex-lawyers come on the podcast and they've become, they've become lawyers and then they've become authors. It seems like you became a screenwriter to stop becoming a lawyer. Isn't that your father wanted you to be a lawyer? Is that correct? My father was incredibly frustrated not being a lawyer, which wasn't my fault. And <laughs> and he then, he he decided that he he was an academic that as he hadn't become a lawyer, his son would become a lawyer. My sister was already a lawyer. That should have been enough, but it wasn't. <laughs> and so in my final um, years at university, in my second year, he stopped me from reading English and made me change the law. And he did this by withdrawing my grant. And, and it was like really contentious. We didn't speak for ages. But the irony was I then had to do 
an additional year at university because I had to do the law degree in, in two years. So I was a bit miffed at doing, you know, um, uh, four years at university instead of three. But I, I was directing a lot of plays. I made my first short film on 16mm. And then weirdly, in my fourth year, a friend who was a mature student said to me, look, I've got a couple of mates coming up from the advertising agency in London and, and they want to have a look around the town. Can you show them around? I went, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, yeah, I'm busy. So I started showing these two people around. They introduced themselves as David and Hugh. And we walked around <laughs> and, and I was showing them various colleges and stuff. And I said, what is this film that you're you know, hoping to make? Oh, they said it's called Chariots of Fire. <laughs> and, and I then ended up casting all the extras uh, in the Cambridge sequences, um, which then led inexorably to how my film career started. And weirdly, you know, my father had arranged pupillage for me because he had contacts and we didn't speak for months because I, I left um, university. I signed on the dole. Um, I managed to find the director, Derek Jarman, who had just made The Tempest, wonderful film. Mm. And for some reason, he took a shine to, to my writing. And I started writing a film script for him. Um, and, and kind of that's, that's how I got started. Was so, that the question? So, so David and Hugh, that was David Putnam and Hugh Hudson. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Who then went on to win, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of awards for Chariots of Fire. And Derek Jarman, this is extraordinary because, you, you know, Jarman was already well, well established and he is one of, I think, one of this country's greatest filmmakers uh, and an artist as well, I think. Uh, and... How do you get someone like Derek Jarman? Because he he commissioned a screenplay from you, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He he. I don't know. I I kind of I I I got to meet him, and then I sort of hung around with him for a few days. He had a kind of he had, he was like a pipe piper, you know. He always had he always had um, young people in in tow behind him, and he'd show super eight movies in his flat in Charing Cross Road with that he had made with, um, you know, wonderful um, orchestral music playing alongside. And, and I, you know, I told him I wanted to get into the film industry. And after about four or five days, he said to me, um, Tim, I can't help you. You know, um, you know, I, I don't think this is going to work. You know, I think you're going to do really well, but there's nothing I can do to help you. Like, I went, okay. And he said, here's my, you've got my phone number. You can always call me. If I can help you, I will, but blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so about a week later, I get a phone call from him. And he was writing a movie script with another young writer called Lee Drysdale. It was called Neutron. And um, they were having trouble with it. And it was it was for David Bowie and Stephen Burkhoff. Um, and it was going to be set in the, it was a post-apocalyptic sort of horror movie set in Battersea Power Station. I mean, it was fabulous. <laughs> anyway, they sent me the script and, you know, it arrived on a motorbike. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. <laughs> you know, here I was a few weeks out of university. Anyway, I read this script and um, and the first time I read it, I thought, well, I, I don't think, draft 14. I don't think I understand this. I better read it again. <laughs> so I read it again. And then about the fourth time, my girlfriend at the time said to me, what's the problem? And I said, I don't think it's very good. <laughs> and she went, well, presumably that's why they're still working on it. I mean, I know, but I can't go in there. And say, who, who am I? I can't. Anyway, she said, well, and she gave me a piece of advice that I've always, you know, sort of stuck to since. She said, you've got to be honest. If you start lying now before you've even started, where are you going to end up? 
So anyway, I went the next day to to Derek's um, uh, flat, and there was Lee, all kind of bouncy, tiggerish, and kind of wanting to get on with it. And Derek said, you type. And there was an old Olivetti. So I sat down, and I thought, oh, what am I going to do? And then after about 10 minutes, I stopped, and I said, look, I'm really sorry to stop you, but I've got to say this, and when I've said it, I'm going to go. So you needn't worry about what I say. Please don't get cross. And then I just told him what I thought of the script and it went on for about 25, 30 minutes. And at the end of it, Lee jumped up and I, I thought maybe he was going to attack me. And, um, and he said, he's absolutely right. Everything he says is absolutely right. Why has anyone told us this before? And so I then got involved in rewriting that with them. And, um, and about two or three weeks later, Derek said, I've got this idea for a movie about a walled up anchoress, um, medieval silent movie will you write it uh yes <laughs> so 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 that was how that happened he was a remarkable man Derek because he was hugely encouraging of of young talent um in, in an extraordinary way so many people Sandy Powell the, the costume designer Tilda Swinton I mean it's uh, John Mabry so many people owe their beginnings to him mm-hmm. he took a chance on so many people and he took a chance on me Fantastic. And that you then uh, moved on to writing in uh, television. You got a lot of television credits. And then I saw you got your first credit as a screenwriter was A Handful of Dust, which is an uh, Evelyn, Evelyn War adaptation. Yeah. But then you got to write and direct your, your, your debut movie, which is Jack and Sarah, which I love. is a wonderful, wonderful film. And in these troubled times, if you want, you know, a warm hug of a movie, listeners check out jack and jack and sarah and it's got richard e grant samantha mathis judy dench eileen atkins sherry lungi imogen stubbs ian mckellen i mean what a cast how did how did that come about well i was working for and I'd, I'd, I'd been on their training directing scheme which was a very famous scheme that people like michael apter and roland joffrey came out of and um and I directed Coronation Street. I directed Sherlock Holmes with Jeremy Brett. And the director of programs, a chap called Steve Morrison, came up to me one day and said, I know you're going to leave this company and you're going to make a movie. And I'm going to kick myself if we're not involved. Have you got a film? And I said, well, yeah, I have actually. So he sent me to see the head of film who at that time was Pippa Cross and I pitched this movie. And two years later, we made it, you know, and... Um, I thought it was a great script. I mean, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. I think I'll cringe probably, but <laughs> I, I would change things now. But um, but it attracted the cast because they loved it. Um, and yeah, it was just a wonderful, wonderful film to make. And um, it, it was weird because it became my calling card for the US. But in a weird way, I was then approached with films that were in trouble, you know, scripts that were in trouble because I was a writer-director. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you'd be attached to these $40 million movies to rewrite and direct. And then you'd rewrite them, which would take a couple of years, maybe a year. Then you'd try and cast. And then they, you know, the foreign sales or whatever didn't improve your cast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, within six or seven years, you've been attached to like three of these projects and you haven't made a film, yeah. but you have become a Hollywood screenwriter. Mm. And, and you can't hold your hand up and go, whoa, wait a minute, I, I want to make these films because it, it doesn't always work like that. But listen, I'm very grateful. Mm. It, you know, it's it, been a great path. 
It is one of those extraordinary things about being a screenwriter is you can actually earn a good living and not ever get anything made sometimes. You know, it's uh, it's a very, very strange. Well, it is w- this is what, you know, led me to write the books. Um, right. I was talking to Lee Hall a, f- a few weeks ago, um, you know, the screenwriter mm. and, and dramatist, and uh, he came up with the same figure that I'd independently come up with in an article. He said, the thing about screenwriting is it's, 80% of your work is never seen. It might be paid for, but, you know, in the old days, it used to end up on the dusty shelf of some executive's office in Hollywood, but it doesn't even get that far now because it's on a hard drive. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even exist. <laughs> and and it's incredibly frustrating because, you are you know, I, I spent a year on Shrek 4 working for Jeffrey Katzenberg, which was really? a wonderful experience. Came up with a really good plot about Shrek going to look for his father played by who's going to be played by Sean Connery and um and you know uh, and Shrek had quintuplets which the marketing people just loved me for um <laughs> and um and you know at the, at the end of about sort of eight eight nine months uh, of really really hard work they brought in the director who just decided to remake It's a Wonderful Life, wanted to make a totally different movie. Mm. And in that situation, when the director comes in, they bring their own writer and, mm. you know, it's the way it goes. So great experience, fantastic working with Jeffrey. But at the end of it, you've got a file on your computer. Wow, that is extraordinary. But yes, let's talk about the move from screenwriting to novel writing. And The Dentist, The Dentist, this is Amazing. It reached number five in contemporary British fiction category on Amazon when it was first released. But when you put it up for free, put it on the free list, it spent over 10 weeks at number one in the crime category. What inspired you to start writing fiction? I just want to say in both the US and the UK, let's just make that clear the number one. Um, uh, it was it was a couple of years ago. I was sitting exactly where I'm sitting now, and I just finished work on My Little Pony. Um, which I co-wrote and co-produced, which was a great experience in Ireland and LA. And um, and I was sitting here and the, that film had kind of finished and the pandemic happened. And suddenly people weren't commissioning. And I had a couple of spec scripts that I was working on. And I just thought, I've always wanted to write a book. I've done this research into this character, you know, that I thought was maybe going to be a movie or a, or a, a TV or something. I've done all this research. I'm going to see if I can write a book. Um, and then I thought, I, I can't be bothered <laughs> with going through all that stuff, with showing it to an agent, showing it to a publisher. In fact, I showed it to my agent, my literary agency of 30 years, and they turned it down. And I just thought, oh, there's loyalty for you. <laughs> and then I thought, nah, I can't be doing with this. I did a, a course on self-publishing, and I said, I'm publishing a book in July which was pretty frightening, bearing in mind there wasn't a word on a page. Um, I commissioned a wonderful cover designer because that's so important. And and I set about writing and then I sent it to a friend who's a a prize-winning novelist and uh, and teaches writing. And I said, look, have a look at this. If it's good, great. If it isn't, just let me know and I'll stop. And a couple of weeks later, this uh, email came, and I won't quite say what it said, but it started quite colourfully, and then <laughs> said, "You should, you should continue." Um, and you know, doing the the, the self writing, you know, the self publishing course, the secret really was that you, you you have to have two books, essentially. 
um, ready. And it's best. And, and if they're in a series, it's 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 even better. And so what you do is you you publish the first one, you sell it for a while, and it gets reviewed. And mine got lots and lots of reviews. And then it's a real kind of odd thing because it's making some money, and you're in debt from your advertising and whatever. And you suddenly make it free, and you stop advertising. But you in the back of the book it says there's a second book coming out in September. And then the book just took on a life of its own. I mean, it just went tonto. It, you know, it was picked up by Barnes and Noble in the US, and it became their free book of their free Friday book of the week. And the cyclist was picked up as one of the must-read twenty-five books of the fall of twenty twenty. So it was kind of amazing. And um, you know, the cyclist had a thousand um, pre-orders, but before day one, for which for a self-published author for book two and you know what people have to understand is if you sell a book for 2.99 on amazon you're going to get two pounds ten pence of that Mm. so you know you're already at 2100 pounds and so i felt confident and and i was getting such great feedback about the character the character is what everyone has kind of um responded to and that's so important in detective fiction Mm -hmm. the character is more important than the crime Mm -hmm. every time Mm. Um, and then my wife said to me, so I was keeping a, a log of the figures and after four months I'd had over 200,000 downloads and I didn't really know what this meant. I didn't, I didn't, I had no idea. And she said, I don't, she's a TV producer. And she said, I, I don't know either, but I think it's probably pretty good. <laughs> um, cause you know, even if you put a free book out there, um, and you know, the, a lot of those books were, were being sold as well. Um, putting a free book out there, there are thousands of free books published every day on Amazon. It's, it's to get it seen and downloaded and read. So she said, I think you ought to get some PR. And um, so I approached a very big PR, book PR company. And they took a look at it and then called me up and said, um, our chief executive has just started up a literary agency. Can we show it to him? And I went, no. And then why not? I said, look, I'm doing really well. You know, this is great. I'm having a really good time. I'm in charge. I do my own advertising. I do. And they said, but you're not getting any PR. And I said, that's why I've come to you. (laughs) And then I went, no, 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 you should be, you should be properly published. So in the end, to cut a long story short, um, I signed up with this agent and he got me a book deal with Head of Zeus, which has been great. Fantastic. What incredible story. And um, how long before we see... DS Cross on TV or in the movies? Is that is that is, no. the beauty of writing books and the beauty of coming from that background? Is I'm not even going to worry about it, right? You know, if someone I'm not interested in, you know, if someone comes to me with a broadcaster and says this broadcaster wants to make this book, then great. But I'm not interested in just selling the rights for the sake of it. It's pointless. Excellent. Excellent. I just want to go back to My Little Pony. Because this was, I was looking through your IMDb, you know, and we've got Sherlock and we've got Cold Feet and we've got, you know, Jack and Sarah, and there's My Little Pony. How aware were you of the phenom- uh, phenomenon of My Little Pony and the bronies and everything else that comes with it? Uh, what sort of, was that was that, uh, was that part of the adventure for you, doing something so different? Well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, I'd worked on a movie many years ago called Flushed Away for Ardman. Watching it just the other day. Yes. Oh, really? Really enjoyed it. I love that. I've got an additional. I worked on that for about four months. I've got an additional material credit on that. Right. And 
And then the producer of that phoned me up. Oh God, when was it? 2019, I think it was. And she said, Tim, I'm working on this movie in this in, in Dublin. She's from um America. And we need a bit of help with it. Um, so would you be willing to look at the script? And I went, of course, you know. She said it'll only be a couple of weeks, you know, it's just it's just in a bit of trouble. And we know, you know, you can turn the script around and blah. So we carried on talking like this. And then she said, So it's my little pony. And my response was, okay, Cecil, you know it's Tim Sullivan you're talking to. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it's like, I know I've done animation before, but it's not like, anyway, um, I went over and and it really did need a lot of work. And the directors were wonderfully responsive. And we just turned the whole thing around. And it was a wonderful adventure. It, It, you know, we got themes in there that we thought would just be, sort of undercurrents that 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 would hopefully you know children would understand subliminally but all the critics picked it up you know it's about mm. racism it's mm. about propaganda and so it was a really it was a great experience and um i didn't know much about the the brand my children and my daughters had had them but you know it 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 was a really interesting time because they'd made a movie before which hadn't done very well and and they wanted a reboot so we had new characters five new characters but you are essentially working alongside a toy factory Mm. and and that's kind of there are interesting tensions there um about what you're doing and about what they're doing and you know one of my big things which i think a lot of it's not original but you know i'd often be told look a five-year-old is not going to get that joke and I, my answer is, yeah, but the bored adult sitting next to him is. Mm. And, and you know, you've got to get that balance right. <laughs> um, but it went really well. Unfortunately, um, it went straight to Netflix because of the pandemic. Yeah. And it was a Paramount movie. And I saw it in a big screen with kids. And, oh, my God, the director did such a fabulous job. And it just looked amazing on the big screen. But when Paramount went to Hasbro and said, look, can we – can we move this, you know, to, to when, you know, people are back in the cinema? They said no, because they had billions of toys around the world yeah. in factories yeah. that were set for that date. So it's a totally different consideration. But it all worked out well because Netflix bought it and now there's going to be a spin-off TV series off the movie. So wow. So wow. it worked out in the end. Just to say, um, I don't want to make you feel old or anything, but uh, talking about inspiring children, but the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes TV series got me into Sherlock Holmes in such a big way. I devoured every single word of of, uh, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes books because of that TV show. So thank you very much for that. You inspired Uh, me. It's it's a pleasure. It's not as bad as I went to see the head of um, the BBC drama once in in a meeting. And it was the first time someone had really made me feel old. Here I am with the head of drama and, uh, you know, he's younger than me and that's fine. And, and I'm sort of talking to him generally about work we want to do. And he goes, I've just got to stop you. I've just got to say that I am such a fan of your Sherlock's. And he quoted the episodes. You know, I really, I really love them. He said, you know, when I used to get home from school, my parents would let me do my homework. After, and that was it. I was finished. I was out of that meeting in my head. I was just, what did he just say? The head of the BBC just, just say he watched my programs when he came home from school. <laughs> 
Me too. Me too. Oh, Tim Sullivan, it's been a joy speaking to you. Uh, folks, The Patient is out now, as is The Dentist, The Cyclist. Go grab your copies. And also, if you go to Tim's website, there is a free book uh, that you can download uh, called In the Can, which details some of Tim's adventures in uh, the movie trade. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that so you can download that. Tim Sullivan, thank you so much for speaking to me today and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. It's fascinating, isn't it? Hearing stories about people who have been through the whole screenwriting. It's very similar to yours, Mark, as well, isn't it? But Oh, he's a lot more successful. (laughs) Well Yeah, well he's been he's he's had a little bit longer. You're you're well on your way, mister. You're well on your way. But the the thing that I love the thing that I love is this idea of how he started his career out by being honest. This idea that he was he took that risk, didn't he? In that amazing story he told where he sat in that room with those incredible people and said it how it was. I mean, how do you tell someone like Derek Jarman? Now, Derek Jarman died way too soon. He was only 52 when he died. It was, uh, you know, he, and he lived not far from here. He lived in Romney in Kent, and he's a local legend and a, a legend for the, you know, British arts and, and film. He's a film director, he's an artist, he was a Gardner, was a gay rights activist, did films like Jubilee, Caravaggio, Blue. How do you tell an an artist at the top of their game like that that your script needs work, mate? How old was he? He was in his twenties. Yeah, yeah, that takes cojones, and it um, does. Yeah, and good on him, you know. And I think that is uh, never be afraid to, you know. I mean, there's ways of doing that. There's ways of doing it, but never be afraid to to point out that you know maybe the emperor has no clothes, or maybe a script needs a rewrite. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it's 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 important. Well, I think in some ways it set him up, didn't it, for you know being authentic his entire career. And I think mm. if you've, I think t- these days everyone's a little bit too scared to point something out when it maybe isn't as good as it could be, and yet he proved that they actually in the back of their mind were already concerned about that. You know, he, he basically, he, he was the confirmation that they needed. And that was the role that he played within that conversation. Especially in film. Everyone lives in fear when making a film, because especially if you're a writer, because you can be fired just like that. You know, they'll get another writer in, you know. Um, but someone like Jarman was hugely collaborative. And I think the best people are the ones who listen and take on criticism, take on new ideas and aren't afraid of that. And in that the boldness that someone like Jarman shows, I think, has rubbed off on, on someone like Tim, who can see something like the My Little Pony movie and see an opportunity to discuss themes of racism and propaganda and put it into a children's film. And I know we all say, oh, it goes over the heads of kids. No, 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 no. Kids are smarter than you think. They they know this stuff. They know what's fair and what's unfair and what's wrong, wrong and what's right. And they love to see that in their stories. Well, it's actually where the foundations of all that starts as well. When you've mm. got that that beautifully young, elastic mind, you know, that, yeah. that can, ready to take in everything. That's the most... Or it is the most important time where these types of issues need to be introduced because it, in reverse, obviously, we know how it starts. You know, it yeah. starts where they're in an environment where the opposite's being fed to them and they're being taught about, you know, to be racist maybe. And, and so in some ways, I think it's absolutely because, I mean, tr- trying to do that in a movie that an 80 year old or a 90 or 100 year old is watching, there's there's a limited opportunity of how you're going to shift people in their views, but like yeah. a five-year-old, absolutely. It's, it's brilliant. Mm. It's brilliant. Mm. I think as well, what's really interesting that is that within the, 
within that kind of world, you know, I think it reminds us as authors that it's super important to give people permission to tell us what sucks about our book. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. because I think too many people give their book to people that they feel safe with. They give their book to a good friend or a family member. You're never going to get an honest an honest feedback in that in that situation if because the person has to gamble with two things they're gambling with do i tell them really what i think about this particular part or the book or what needs changing and, and risk the friendship or, or risk the relationship that's why people like editors are so important because yes they want to obviously build a good relationship with with you but it's a professional relationship built on feedback ultimately and so for anyone who's who's been out there has only got feedback from a very small, safe group of people and wonders why their book's not doing well, that might be an indication that maybe you need to go out and need to give someone permission to say, look, I, I actually want to know all the things that don't make sense to you, that, you, you know, when you got bored with it, when you stopped reading. Um, and that's and that's what Tim did. And I guess because Tim can do that on other people's work, he's probably very, very good at doing that as he's writing his books as well and being very honest with his own writing, which probably is why he's been so successful as well. Yeah, you develop that sort of critical muscle. It takes time, I think, hmm, I being think so, able yeah. to know what your own bad habits are and uh, but also just to be able to not see criticism as a knockback but see it as an opportunity, an opportunity to improve and build on what you already have rather than sort of smashing your toys and going home in a huff. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. also it's a, it's an, a member to rem, for us to remember as well that no matter how far you get in your career and how many years you've been writing and how good your writing gets, even when you're at the top of your game, there are always going to be bad writing days. There's always going to be, always going to be the script that needs a bit bit of work on it, um, and the fact that Derek Jarman was like you know um, authentic enough in himself as well to kind of mm-hmm. accept that and say actually you're right and realizing it was only going to make it stronger probably again why he was such a successful person and his all of the endeavors that he did as well yeah no incredible 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 man fascinating incredible stuff, stuff. Yeah. One, one thing that jumped out for me and we'll get to little my little pony in a minute but shrek 4 that yeah. was a bit of a, a a left fielder how many yeah. shreks have there been have there been four oh, shreks now i think this they have and i think that's where they stopped my my son is a bigger Shrek aficionado because he basically grew up with them and yeah. he's got very very strong opinions and after I did this interview, I told him that Shrek 4 could have had Sean Connery as Shrek's father. He was he was so distraught at the missed opportunity <laughs> right. that, that presented because he's, you know, he lo- I think his order goes two, three, no, uh, his favourite ones are two, one, three, four. Um, so, yeah, yeah he's, uh, you know, he's very opinionated. And they mean a lot to, to that generation of kids as well. Mm. Again, you know, they, they, they have an effect on them. Um, on those young minds so yeah he was gutted absolutely gutted but that would have been a perfect perfect combo wouldn't it though i know but that's that that's that is as you said it's the nature of film you know the to all intents and purposes the studio is the author of the motion picture and when they bring a director in the director is the one essentially in charge and if they don't want to go in that direction there's nothing you can do you know you have to go with the flow i mean at least you know he was paid you know, Tim was paid for that work. He, you know, developed a working relationship with good people at DreamWorks, which sets you instead for the future as well. So yeah, it's um, it's just the way of things. I mean, I've um, I I was uh, working on something um with uh, the Henson Group for a little while, Jim Henson. You know, and mm. it's uh, it ne- never got as far down the road as that. But 
it was um, it was fun while it lasted, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and 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 as he said, you know, as a screenwriter, eighty percent of your work is never seen. Uh, you know, you're always working on something that might or might not ever get made. I think as long as you're being paid. I'm all right with that. It's when people ask you to do unpaid work that I can get a bit miffed. So, although I, I, I challenge that a tiny bit. Absolutely, getting paid is essential. But imagine somebody who's, and I'm sure there's someone out there. There's many people out there that have spent their entire career writing scripts and never had anything made. And you think if you got to the end of your life and none of your work had ever come out, there would be a probably quite a sadness around that. The fact that legacy-wise, it never actually seen the light of day and nobody even knew that they really existed you think yeah 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 i feel that's a balance in some ways isn't it the thing is it's such a lottery i mean i know that we've talked a lot about this over the years about that kind of um having to 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 write and and hope um that something comes out but that leads me on to why i think tim loves what he does now as Mm. well because it really struck me. I mean, I know we've talked about it, but when you hear about all his stories and then you think about the success that he's had, firstly down the self-publishing route and then publishing, this idea that when you write a book, there's one thing that you can absolutely guarantee and that book can get published. Mm-hmm. And there is no one apart from you as the author that can prevent that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think, is one of the magic secret sources of why people write, because they have yeah. that control, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, screenwriting, you're right at the bottom, bottom of the ladder. So many stars have to align for things to happen. And even then, you know, you, your script, well, you know, the actors get hold of it, director gets hold of it, everything changes. I mean, if it when it works, it's great. It's a wonderful collaborative process, and you end up with something wonderful. When it doesn't work, it can be really, really painful. Um, so, yeah, that, I... The appeal for Tim of years in the film industry, dancing to other people's tune, to suddenly being able to write his own novel where he has complete control uh, must be an absolute joy. Uh, I mean, of course, the irony is, you know, he offered it to his agent and his agent turned it down. And then he goes on and makes it an absolute smash hit. (laughs) So, God, that must have been fun. (laughs) In some ways, it's almost the perfect combo. Because I've got to say, I, I, there's definitely an allure to screenwriting, even though you mentioned like it's it's such a lottery in, in many ways mm. and so many external factors that can affect whether something actually comes to fruition. But having that combination, having that excitement of that, that, that could happen, right? And But also writing a book and knowing that this will happen, the combination of those two kind of like, I don't know, it must give gives people a bit of an edge. Do you think, do you think that? Welcome to my world. <laughs> well, you know, that's what I was thinking. This is the world you live in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I don't think I could just do screenwriting. It's just too depressing. <laughs> the idea that, that, you know, most of what you write never sees the light of day. At least I know that I will write stuff and people, because that for me is the ultimate, the fact that people will read it and take some pleasure from it and the words get out there. And that's why you write for the readers and for the, you know, for the, for their enjoyment. And, uh, yeah, so that, that, that part of me is, gets very, very fulfilled and it's wonderful. Um, uh, and then the screenwriting, the flip side of that is, yeah, okay, stuff maybe never ever gets made, but every now and then I've been very lucky two films so far, maybe a third, maybe a mm. TV show, you know, then, um, then yeah, that's, uh, 
that's that is the lottery win, I guess. That's it the is. kind of you know, if it happens, it's great. If it doesn't, I've got this thing over here that's 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 scratching that itch for me, you know. Yeah, because it really does like it's writing, and it just it's where the writing ends up going out into the world ultimately. But it's still writing, whether it's script writing or writing novels. You, very you, different you may exercise. You may recall we had another screenwriter on the podcast in our first year, um, Joe Ho, who was a BAFTA award-winning oh, yeah. screenwriter. Yeah. And she took a whole bunch of her old scripts and turned them into novels and novellas and has done very well, thank you very much. So that's an option as well. Um, who else did that? Uh, horror writer, Adam Adam Neville, Adam G. Neville, I think yeah. he did that too, took a bunch of your old scripts and turned well, them as into novels. Well, so. as you've always said, no writing's ever wasted. I mean, exactly. that's, that's yeah, the yeah, motto, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, one area we do have to talk about, and I think regular listeners would be amiss of me to not bring this up after my 99p rant a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to this blows me away. Yeah. 200,000 free downloaded books. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sitting there going, ah... <laughs> interesting <laughs> because in some ways in some ways you could say that completely blows my my rant out of the water because you can now look at tim's career and say yeah that didn't do him any harm and queeve actually said as well didn't he queeve mcdonald our yeah uh awesome awesome patron who's incredibly successful author as well um on the on the bxp team that we have the the private group for authors that we run he did say as well that he's used the kind of the 99p to get yeah. kind of to get the bolstered um i mean offering free books how how often does that happen now would you say is that less and less no i think it's quite a common uh marketing tactic i think uh it's some you know it's that thing of the lost leader which is you know a very well established marketing (laughs) amazon for the first like 20 years of its life, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's, um, I think if you've got one book, you're a bit stuffed. You know, you don't want to be giving that away for free. But if you've got a series, and now that I'm writing the fourth book of a series, I'm now looking at the Crow Folk and having conversations with my publishers about, okay, how do we use the Crow Folk as a gateway into the rest of the series? I mean, it's already been in a couple of 99p promotions but then what else can we do with it i know we're talking to um specialist booksellers like the works you know the works do cheaper oh, yeah. versions yeah, yeah, yeah. of the books there's no shop. laminator and it's slightly cheaper paper but you know they they do and again it's just tapping into markets that might not might not otherwise do it you know do we do something with the audiobook do we you know so there's all these conversations going on and it's it's something that's you know well established in you know Good old capitalist marketing gives something away. <laughs> the but, thing know. that's really interesting about about that, you know, I guess the experiment that that Tim did, where he he put it up for free download, and of course he he wasn't trying to get two hundred thousand downloaded. That's just what happened when he put it up there. Um, but I guess within the marketing world as well, we've got this thing called A/B testing, which is where you do mm-hmm. you you. I mean, in, in a website scenario, it's like you have actually, and a lot of people don't realise this, but if you go to a website and you get served a page, if you refresh the page, you might see an alternative version of it, and it's called A/B testing. It's basically putting statistics like which one was the most successful, and you tweak things. But within within this experiment of the two hundred thousand free books, although Tim did say some of them were bought as well, yeah, but. Yeah. Having done that, you don't know what would have happened had he have put the book up for sale at two ninety nine 
and it had gone on to sell 200,000 copies or 20,000 copies. So it's really hard to know, you know, would the book have been successful regardless? Because it was obviously a great book. I mean, and that's obviously why it downloaded so many times is that people were downloading it, recommending it. But it's really interesting. It's so hard to know ultimately what would, in any one point in time, what's the best play? Yeah. Well, you know, drug dealers do it. Pornographers do it. <laughs> you have a little bit for free, then you got to cough up for the rest. It's um, talking about your Friday Alleged- night allegedly. So I've so I've read on the dark web. Um, so yeah, you know, but it, well, yeah, it's, a it's just I still I still feel it just kind of makes my stomach go a bit queasy the thought of giving away an entire book. I think giving away a short story, giving away a a novella, giving away the first couple of chapters. Mm. I can I can get that. Giving away a whole book, it's like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. It's a lot to be letting go of. But brilliant. I mean, it worked for Tim and it and it then led him to to get his publishing deal as well, which is which is absolutely phenomenal. So, you know, you know, there's as you say, there's no there's no for every individual, there's only their way. There's no right or wrong. Yep. Um what works for one person might not work for someone else. So the most important thing, as we always say on this podcast, is to what? Experiment, to try Experiment. out. Give it a go. Yep. It's the only way you're ever gonna learn. So don't do drugs, what, kids. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> None of that though. Um we have to we can't we can't finish this conversation about Tim without chatting a little bit about my little pony mark. It's it's so completely left field like usually usually you build a career in that world writing for kids you you become aware of like the nuances of writing for that type of audience and yet tim almost parachuted into that and well there's a there's a certain when when you get enough experience as a screenwriter and you become known in the industry uh people will come to you and say can you come in and fix this script can you come in for a week uh, I, I think it's even known as weeklies and the pay on that very nice thank you very much really really good pay now there's not anyone can do it. it it's a real skill to sort of jump in to something that's already written probably already in production everyone's panicking because the the you know the the train has left the station the ship is out to sea and they've realized that there's a leak and someone has to fix the leak you know mm. and it's uh it it's it's a particular kind of skill. One I'd like to develop. Thank you very much. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, and you come in and you work for a week or two weeks or whatever, and you try and fix that script, and you get paid a lot of money for it. And you don't always get a credit. You don't. Mm. You know, someone like um, William Goldman used to do that a lot. Carrie Fisher used to do that a lot. Carrie Fisher really? is an uncredited screenwriter on many of your favourite films, and um, you know they were coming and punch stuff up. And then off they go. So I think Tim is one of those people who's worked. You look at his IMDb page and he's worked in all kinds of genres. And um, I mean, he did say that even he was surprised by My Little Pony. But I guess because he'd worked on Shrek 4, they thought, oh, animation, he's done animation. Let's get him in. That's the link. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. And he saw an opportunity to do something, to have some fun with it and put in some really interesting themes. And and I think, as we said, you know, people appreciate that. Uh, It's weird. I had a call with my agent earlier and we were talking about, my brand as a screenwriter and the fact that I've written all sorts of weird stuff and there, there seems to be no rhyme or reason, which he's fretting about, I'm fine with it. you know. <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah, no, it's fine. I can write anything because as far as I'm concerned, story is story. I, you know, I'd love to work on a My Little Pony movie. I'd love to work on a Derek Jarman movie. Can you, can you imagine two, you know, more different more projects? Extreme. Yeah. Um, 
so you know as far as i'm concerned story story but yeah the, the whole brand thing is something when your uh agent is trying to sell you to people then it's especially when you're kind of starting out it can be really difficult but um yeah good on him i think it's brilliant <laughs> i think it's absolutely brilliant it, it reminds me of those do you hear about these consultants that come into businesses when they're yes they're yeah. struggling or they're about to go bankrupt or they've got some major problem and they bring in this kind of guy that you know, a guy or gal that basically can like sort everything out, get everyone working together again, and get everything back on track. And they make documentaries about that, so it makes absolute sense that people like that exist. But it does feel like you have to get to the top of your game in order to be able yeah. to do that well. Well, I'm I'm reading I'm reading a fantastic book about the making of Mad Max Fury Road, oh, which took, that was a great movie. Oh, it's wasn't an amazing! It? Movie. Wasn't that yeah. Loved it. it was, uh, and it took decades to to get made. And they didn't actually have a script; they had storyboards. They actually sacked the scriptwriter quite early on. And mm. George Miller had storyboards. The whole thing was storyboarded. But when the actors started coming on board, they oh. they hired um, they got Kelly Marcel, who's a fantastic screenwriter. She's um, she worked on the uh, Saving Mr. Banks. Was that Kelly Marcel? Yes, Saving Mr. Banks uh, film. And uh, she came in and worked with the actors and did all the backstory. And so, so, you know, you get, you, you can get screenwriters jumping in at certain points, you know, to, to, to essentially, you know, G a film along. And it's, um, it's a really good book, actually. It's, I think it's called Blood, Sweat and Chrome. And he, the guys interviewed everyone who worked on the film. It's one of the best making of books I've read in recent times. So yeah, it's, um, it does happen. It's, uh, it's, um, all, all the fun and the fair. It is absolutely. I remember seeing that film. Seems like a distant memory now in the cinema. That thing yeah. that we used to go to quite re, re, uh, regularly. And I just remember like the the movie finishing. It felt like one of the Bourne movies. It's like from the moment the, the yeah. opening credit started to the end, it was relentless. Like, it was relentless. <laughs> like being on a roller coaster, and yeah. I was absolutely exhausted. And I'd be sitting yeah. on my butt the whole time. And I just looked at, and I went with two of my two of my guy friends because we were like we couldn't we couldn't drag the ladies out. Unfortunately. But, <laughs> but we just sat there and we all just looked at each other and we just like puffed our cheeks out like. Wow. <laughs> just yeah. to, we didn't get up and rush out. We just sat there for five minutes just to kind of come down from that. Yeah. It's yeah. Ab- if you ever get a chance to see it in the in the cinema, it is just it's with the, the music as well. Absolutely mm. brilliant. Didn't, didn't expect that going in. I was like, whoa, absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you so much to Tim for sharing his time with us and for being such a great sport and and, and sharing some of those incredible inspiring stories. And just to say, uh, this is my tie-in copy of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes. This is my first Sherlock Holmes novel, The Sign of Four. Four, And that's Jeremy Brett on the cover there. And this was published 1987. So I was, what, 14? Yeah. Um, This edition first published 1890. Um, So, yeah, that was – that. Got me into Sherlock Holmes. That's um, that was a big moment for me. Really, really big moment for Sherlock. We've got the we've got the DVD set of that. Of those, they were on ITV, yeah. I think, in the UK, if I remember. They right. were, yeah, Granada, and Granada they were the TV, f- yeah. and everyone listening to this, they're going, "Oh, Sherlock, yeah, I've seen the Sherlock." It's not no. the Benedict Cumberbatch one. It's no. not. It's not the most recent BBC adaptions, which are absolutely fantastic. This was like the the proper. What, what was Jeremy. the? When was this in the seventies or eighties? No, eighty seven. Oh, eighties. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you yeah. want to go back to some of the real original Sherlock Holmes, just TV, dig, dig out those. 
And if you want to hear more of Tim's adventures in the movie trade, uh, he's uh, he, he did have a free book, but he's put them all up as blog posts. It's called In the Can, and I'll put a link in the show notes because they're really refreshingly honest and very funny. Uh, there's some there's some really really good stuff in there. Michael Douglas, lovely person from all accounts. So I was just reading one of his wow. entries today. So uh, yeah, do check that out. There's a link in the show notes brilliant stuff so mr stay social media what's what's been happening this week on the social media front good good stuff so kate baker who i bumped into at the um at the london book fair she's at blue viola on uh, twitter she says i found an edible way to celebrate 100 days in a row on the 200 words a day challenge um and she's done this wonderful cake, uh, 200 words a day, uh, sort of it's sprinkled on uh, uh, on the cake. It was very, very yummy. Far too many calories for me, Kate, but, but I really, really hope you enjoyed it. And congratulations on hitting your 100-day streak uh, doing the 200 words a day challenge. Congrats on that. That is a milestone, 100 days. I mean, a seven-day, seven days initially is a milestone, but 100 days that is the start of great things. So congratulations, Kate. Well, well done. Uh, Emanuela Dekanor, who uh, supports us on Patreon and is part of the Bestseller Experiment Group on Facebook. She says, hi, everyone. I'm still in rejection land, but I wanted to post that I had a poem published in the Visual Verse April edition that aims to raise funds for Ukrainian poets. They called out for other writers who have been through war or upheaval. So I wrote about the revolution in Ghana. She says it's dark, but if you don't mind that, take a look. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this, it is it is dark stuff, um, but really really powerful. And Emanuela coming from a you know, really coming from a place of truth and honesty there. That's that's really moving to read. So so do check that out, folks. Wow, that's that's, um, amazing. that's in the show notes. Really really powerful. Um, Elizabeth Hurley uh, again, big supporter on Patreon and member of the BXP group. She says fabulous news. Two rejections. So why is this good news? Because they both gave detailed feedback and they both agreed with each other on all points. This is fabulous as it gives me something to work on. So, you know, that's uh, great. (laughs) You know, one step forward, uh, two steps back kind of thing. But yeah, that's that's great. Congratulations on that, Elizabeth. It's always good to get that that's the kind of spirit that i love to see we see it in the academy we see it in the, yep. the, the team yep, yep, yep. and we want all our listeners to if that's not the way that you approach things you know we always say rejection is a badge of honor and it means yep. you're putting it out there you get rejected it doesn't mean your career's ended it means that those two companies aren't going to go with you but the third one probably will when you take on board that feedback so brilliant elizabeth really really good attitude and a lovely bit of news from Molly Gimmel, uh, another Patreon supporter in the BXP group as well. She says, hi, folks. I know most of the people in this group write fiction, but I wanted to share that I just published my first nonfiction book on women and leadership. I'm so excited. And the book is called Master Your Mindset, How Women Leaders Step Up. And I checked just before we went uh, to record this today, and Master Your Mindset is an, has one of those lovely number one bestseller flags on Amazon. So, Molly, huge congrats, on, not only on publishing your book, but on becoming a bestseller on Amazon. Fantastic. That is absolutely brilliant. Congratulations. And actually, on that note, Mark, we've got another, another um, BXP team member and um, Academy member celebrating this week because... Um, Tammy, Tammy Mercer Gervais, mm. uh, was part of a compilation series that released um, in Canada. Um, well, it went worldwide, but in, in on Kindle in Canada, the the compilation book um, hit number one. Not just not just in 
um, genres, but across the entire country. Wow. And Tammy's been working so hard. And Tammy's yes. great. Tammy's so humble about these things that she's she's not shouting out about it, which is why I'm doing it here for her, because that's what we're <laughs> about, right? But um, just massive congratulations to Tammy on that. Um, we know every, when we get to know people intimately kind of in the academy, we get to kind of know their journey. We get to know the, the you know, the duration, the, the struggles, the, the highs, the lows. We really get to know you as authors. And so for me, this gives me massive pleasure to celebrate this with everyone because Tammy's worked so hard at this. I've been on a number of actual writing retreats with Tammy um, over the years as well. And for her to get to this point in her career, it's just the beginning and uh, brilliant. So may that inspire all of you as well who've been, who've been working away at this for a number of years to, to get that kind of feedback and success is mind blowing. So congratulations. Really is. Folks, uh, if you've got any good news, get in touch. Drop us a line. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. Or you can find us on social media. We're Bestseller Experiment on Facebook and at Bestseller XP on Twitter and Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the show, if you've been inspired, give us a, a rating or a review, or at the very least, just subscribe, because um, we're here to stay, folks. Uh, we come up to 400 episodes this year. We're not going anywhere. We're going to keep going, aren't we, Mr. D? Absolutely. And if you need an excuse, if you want to eat more cake in your life, um, <laughs> be like Kate and, and, and start the Chandra Word Challenge. Can you get to... Yeah seven days that's all it's don't don't set big goals like thousand days or a hundred days can you just get to seven days of consecutive writing every day for a minimum of 200 words the way to do it is to sign up to the free 200 word challenge it's at 200 word challenge.com and then if you would like to take your writing to the next level if you would like to really up your game get massive accountability get coaching um do many many courses that we've got on the academy join mark and i at the bestseller academy it's simply academy.bestsellerexperiment.com so mr stay thank you so much for uh your time you're often enjoying a bit of musical entertainment tonight i believe i hope yes. uh, i hope you uh, enjoy this and everyone else if you're getting out you're getting out i'm seeing someone i was seeing an artist on sunday and it's like oh we're gonna go to a concert it's so great i'm going I'm to see the bootleg beatles tonight i hear oh. they've got a new george harrison so i want to check that out and um, i'm also going to be at EasterCon over the easter weekend so i hope to see lots of friends there and i'll give you a full report next week i uh, look forward to it brilliant stuff mm -hmm. so it's a goodbye from mark one and goodbye from mark two goodbye, goodbye. <laughs>